everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Dispatches from the Front. Happy New Year to everyone as we are recording this uh, almost at New Year's Eve. We'll probably have this set for a New Year's Eve or New Year's Day release. This is episode number 12, and we are covering Black Hawk Down, which is a favorite movie of both Tom and I. How are you tonight, Tom? I'm wonderful, and I, you know... I don't know how long this will be, but my prediction is that if you start this podcast episode at 10.42 p.m. Uh, tomorrow night, if it's posted in time, <laughs> you will ring in the new year by hearing my legal disclaimer, which is what <laughs> you should all aim for. <laughs> pretty I'm close. Good, otherwise. <laughs> yeah, pretty close. Um, there's just so much to talk about with Black Hawk Down. It is a fantastic movie. Like I said, we both love this movie, and there's a lot of depth to it. There's a lot of history to it. It's based on a, an actual event. Uh, and, of course, the reminder here is that while we are certainly reflecting on the actual event, we're talking about the movie. So there's some things we might be a little lighthearted on. It is certainly not meant in disrespect to anyone. Um, we're talking about the film here. But obviously, there are a lot of parallels and intersections with um, with history with this. So before we do jump into this, I do want to give a quick shout out to uh, Mike, one of our hosts on the Ram Chatter Network. Back on November 22nd, he had put up a post with a bunch of great pictures on our website from the Infantry Museum at Fort Benning. So please head over to randomchatter.com, check those out. As he was going through it, he was actually thinking of us and our show, and he was texting me saying, hey, I'm here, I'm getting some of these great pictures. Uh, so I do want to give a, a shout out to him, because there's a lot of stuff that covers like really the entire history of um, U.S. Army infantry, and there's a lot of cool stuff there. So please check that out. If you're anywhere near Fort Benning, which is about an hour and a half below Atlanta in Georgia, it is well worth the stop to, to go to that museum. Uh, it is simply outstanding. It's one of the newer museums in the Army, but it's very, very good. Very cool. So let's see. Uh, we will get into some stuff here with Black Hawk Down. This was – it kind of had one of those strange things straddling the year. It had its premiere dates – in December of 2001, which, of course, got it qualified for award season. Uh, but it really had its wide release in January of 2002. This was produced by Jerry Bruckheimer, who is famous for lots of famous movies. <laughs> um, the writing here, it's the movie was actually based on a novel uh, called Black Hawk Down, A Story of Modern War, written by Mark Bowden. Uh, who's actually a, was a reporter for the Philadelphia Inquirer. He released that book in 1999. Apparently, Jerry Bruckheimer got a hold of an early copy of that book before it went to wide publication. He said he fell in love with the book as soon as he read it and contacted Ridley Scott, who's the director of this movie, got him on board and had a screenplay written up by Ken Nolan. Uh, and that, of course, was after Bruckheimer's production company bought the film rights to this story. A uh, little bit of a, of an additive here in terms of Ridley Scott, who also is known for a gazillion wonderful things like Gladiator and, and just other awesome movies. They recently announced a film that's going to be directed 
by Ridley Scott titled Battle of Britain. Hmm. Uh, there's no dates or anything attached to it. There's no other information attached to it. So it's probably a movie that's not going to come out until like 2020. But um, I'm like really intrigued by it. I'm really looking forward to it, especially knowing that Ridley Scott's attached to it. That sounds phenomenal. Yeah. If they do the air combat, because that, if you've seen the original Battle of Britain, that's one of the greatest air combat movies. Oh, it's really ever. good. But if they even come close to that, I'm thinking the 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 closest example I can, I, the closest standard I could think of. Um, would be Dunkirk. I mean, if they mm. if they do that level of justice to the story, that yeah. will be one for the ages. Yeah, absolutely. Wasn't uh, the original Battle of Britain one of George Lucas's inspirations for dogfights and such in Star Wars? It was. In fact, if I'm if I have my Star Wars history right, and I should get ten lashings if I don't. <laughs> uh, the original mock-ups or the original, I guess, versions of the some of the Death Star assault scenes were done and Lucas hated it. And then he sat the folks down, the modelers and whatnot, and made them watch air combat footage. Cool. And he's like, this is what I'm looking for. And so that's, that led to what you see today. Neat. Uh, and also a notable shout out here to Hans Zimmer, who scored this movie. I love the score to this movie. I think it's yes. freaking fantastic. The soundtrack to this movie, uh, I actually bought a few years ago. And I still, once in a while, will play the stuff off of it. It's really, really good. There's some, like, very cool Arabic rock that's in it and just some other really terrific songs. Some of it is originally done by Hans Zimmer. Some of it's done by some other uh, artists. And it's really very good. So, like, when you watch this movie and you have these little bits and pieces of music and such playing in the background you realize how much they really like drive some of the feeling of of the story and where they're it at. had been years it had been years since i watched this movie it, i um i don't know that i had watched it since i've been with uh since i've known or even dated my wife and so just putting the disc on and hearing his score start up with the menu, mm -hmm. I got chills and I was like, Oh, here we go. Oh yeah, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> so, uh, Tom, as per usual, uh, do you want to cover our plot summary for the film? Yeah. So Black Hawk down, as you well know, is based on the true story of what's known as the battle of Mogadishu, otherwise known as the operation Gothic serpent, which took place on October 3rd through the 4th, 1993. And one of my favorite lines in the movie at the end, Hoot uh, looks over to Sarneversman. and he's like, hey, we started a new week. It's Monday. <laughs> so Sunday to Monday. So Task Force Ranger, which is a joint operation including Special Operations Command, 75th Ranger Regiment, Delta Force, and the 160th SOAR, were all deployed to Mogadishu, Somalia to capture lieutenants of War Warlord Mohammed Farah Adid during the Somali Civil War. The assault force for the mission consisted of 19 aircraft, 12 vehicles, and 160 soldiers. The extraction operation, originally planned for one hour, became a battle that extended well into the next day, or a new week, with numerous casualties after Somali militia shot down two UH-60 Black Hawk helicopters. The movie is the story of the task force rangers' execution of their mission, survival, and leaving no man behind. 
Yeah, and so they call this Task Force Ranger, even though it is comprised of other elements. It's not just Rangers, uh, but you hear it referenced in the film, in, and that's a historically accurate reference. Uh, they, they were designated as Task Force Ranger. So there's certainly a lot of historical context to this, like we've mentioned. Uh, this was actually the longest, bloodiest battle for U.S. troops since the Vietnam War. So that's pretty damn significant. And this whole thing historically started off with the collapse of the Somali government back in 1991. And largely factions broke off that were being overseen by a variety of different warlords. They were killing people indiscriminately. They were fighting each other for power. They were fighting any kind of fledgling government that would pop up here and there. And one of the ways that they held power was by keeping food for themselves. And that's a scene that we see very early on in this movie is a uh, uh, relief truck coming in with huge bags of rice. And they're trying to distribute the rice fairly. Some of Adid's men show up and just start gunning civilians down. And... um what they also didn't show what they didn't show in there was that much of that food was kept for his own armies and his lieutenant there. That's such a visceral scene. Cause you, you start out with sort of the uh, Arabic type music and the quote from Plato about only the dead having seen the end of war mm. and this relief truck comes in and it's just mobbed. And I, I just remember the first time that I saw this in theaters, I was still in high school at the time and i it just left such an indelible mark on me watching the chaos that surrounds it and then you've got the uh, the black hawk with some of the delta troops on it circling providing some sort of cover and they're just really observing the scene and as uh, adid's militia opens up on the crowd and starts stealing the food they're told the u.s soldiers are told they can't touch it yeah and they can't engage the, the militia or do anything. And there's just this air of frustration. And specifically because Task Force Ranger was sent there for that particular uh, capture mission of Adid and his top lieutenants, they couldn't engage anyone unless they were actually being engaged by the enemy themselves. They weren't there to protect any of these relief missions or anything like that. That was more centered on... Uh, the the ongoing UN operation. So yeah, and it's there's a really interesting interplay here. Um, that a UN operation like this is rare. You don't see you, you haven't seen them certainly in the last 18 years. They haven't been involved in terms of our conflicts in Syria, Iraq, or Afghanistan. Uh, it's unique because of what's required to get the UN to muster or authorize force here and i don't want to turn this into a discussion of like <laughs> the law of war but it is really interesting because when you're talking about the un you've only got a couple really legitimate ways that countries can can actually go to war have a, like a legal basis for the use of force to send in troops uh, to, to another country like this one would be self-defense uh you know something like a 9-11 or whatever which was not the case here Otherwise, you're looking at a Security Council resolution, which is what was behind the the uh, use of force here in Somalia. And 
before the Security Council can can vote to authorize the use of force, when I say the use of force, that means like sending troops in mm-hmm. uh, under the UN flag. You've got to have an, a situation that's a threat to international peace and security. And then the UN has to authorize the use of all necessary means to resolve that threat. And they found both here. The, the threat to international peace and security was this rapidly deteriorating situation in Somalia that the scale of this civil war was likely to spill into other countries, that this was not going to be contained. This wasn't necessarily the UN saying, hey, some bad stuff is happening in Somalia and we feel awful for these people. Let's go help them. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly that would justify an aid mission, but the use of force is a step above that. And that, that's really what, what it was getting at. Um, and I think certainly once you had the massacre of the Pakistani troops that's mentioned at the, the start of the movie, that really sets the conditions. Uh, for advanced involvement. But with that scene in particular, what you see there is a frustration, not with like the UN charter, because Task Force Ranger wasn't under th- that flag. It was a frustration with their rules of engagement. Yeah. Uh, the local commander saying, hey, look, these, uh, I don't care what the, the general rules about the use of force are. Specifically, you will not engage, you will not use force except under these circumstances. And uh, you know, with that helicopter there, they didn't have any need to use self-defense, so they couldn't engage. Right. So it's frustrating for the audience, certainly frustrating for those guys. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And so there were a lot of changes that occurred with a lot of these different UN resolutions through a fairly brief period of time. Uh, the, the UN tried to get some order restored in kind of 92 and early 93 through something called Operation Restore Hope which was significantly supported by a uh, deployment of uh, U.S. Marines who managed to secure about one-third of the city of Mogadishu, which also included the port and the airport. And the goal there was to establish a safe zone and to establish a means of getting relief supplies and distributing relief supplies into that area. And because of how warlords had kind of carved up much of Somalia, there were a lot of, I mean, they're really called refugees, even though they're still all Somalians, but folks who are folks who are forced from their homes elsewhere in Somalia and just kind of collapsed into the city of Mogadishu. It's the largest urban area there. And there was a hope that that's where they were going to be getting some supplies and shelter and whatever resources they needed to survive. So the population density uh, in, a, in the city of Mogadishu, which was already very high, got even higher because of all these refugees coming in from around the country. So that Operation Restore Hope was real successful with the Marines. Then in early 93, the UN kind of shifted the operation to be more focused on just humanitarian operations, which then meant them largely withdrawing the Marines. Uh, in June of 93... Mohamed Afra Adid, uh, who you mentioned, he was basically at this point the primary warlord in Somalia and certainly around Mogadishu. He ordered an attack on the UN forces that were there, uh, which the element that he attacked largely consisted of uh, Pakistanis. That resulted in 24 KIAs, 57 wounded across the Pakistanis. And following this, the UN then passed another resolution 
authorizing the arrest, the arrest, excuse me, uh, and prosecution of Adid and his lieutenants. And then that is what Task Force Ranger was organized and deployed to do starting in August of 93. So there's a big background here. This isn't just something that just magically occurred. There was, <laughs> you know, a few years of things happening. And just like we see in places like Afghanistan and Iraq and Syria, where these things just kind of continue to boil and boil for a long time. And you unfortunately have uh, instances of things like genocide and all these different war crimes and civil war and, and all that. So it's a it's a hell of an environment for these folks to be getting into. Um, I do just want to mention quick before we jump fully into the film, being that this is an actual historical event and some of it actually driven by the popularity of the film itself. There are a lot of references out there. Um, I mean, anything from Wikipedia, which obviously, you know, <laughs> there's there's Wikipedia articles on everything. <laughs> Um, but there, it, there's a lot of books out there, uh, written by folks who analyze this or folks who are actually there. There is, there's a couple of recent episodes from a podcast called the spear. Uh, the spear is actually produced by the modern war Institute. Uh, I say down at West point because West point is just a couple <laughs> hours South of me. Um, centering on the battle of Mogadishu and they actually have, uh, I cannot remember the colonel's name. He was General Garrison's um, XO. He was the second in command there. Um, he was in there. They had someone in there. Uh, they had a couple of operators in there also. So really, really fascinating, fascinating with the different perspectives that folks had of, of this and what was going on on the streets, what was going on in command and all those other things. So. Um, definitely check those out. I will say this as we transition, just like we talked about in the Band of Brothers podcast, I was blown away having not watched this for several years at the level of casting. Oh. I'm sure they didn't know it at the time. There's no way to predict where these <laughs> careers would take. But it was like every five minutes, we were, you know, my wife is pointing out like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And with, um, I think the pinnacle of it was um, Ty Burrell, yeah. better known as Mr. Dumphy from Modern Family yes. <laughs> as a Delta medic. <laughs> yeah. You know, and but it's just top to bottom. I, I don't know how they assembled that crew, but it, it was a good one. Yeah, there's an absolutely incredible cast for this. So, I mean, just some of the notables here. I mean, there's a lot of other folks. We had Josh Hartnett playing um, Sergeant Eversman, Ewan McGregor playing Grimes, Tom Sizemore playing Lieutenant Colonel McKnight, Eric Bana playing Hoop, uh, William uh, Fickner playing Sanderson, Sam Shepard played General Garrison, Jason Isaacs playing Captain Steele, Jeremy Piven playing Walcott, and of course, Jeremy Piven is usually in a well, at the time, used to be in a more comedic role, but now he's been in um, what's the I, what's the show that he's been in lately? That's uh, music industry. Oh, oh, um, not Entourage. I'm, yeah, I think it is Entourage. You've got me. If that's not it, then you've got me. I, I think it might be. Uh, which is a more dramatic role, but I mean, Jeremy Piven's usually uh, uh, plays a lot of comedic roles. 
uh, Tom Hardy, who I think this was like the very beginning of his career, very close to it, played Twombly. So skinny in it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Orlando Bloom played Blackburn. Ty Burrell, as you mentioned, played Wilkinson. Uh, and George Harris, who we've seen things from like Indiana Jones and a bunch of other movies, played uh, Otto, who was the uh, financier of uh, Adid's militia. And he's the one who they capture very early on uh, in the film. So. Don't dare forget Kingslayer, Jamie Lannister. I can never pronounce the actor's name right. Oh. But uh, Coster, Coster Waldo. Oh, okay. Nick, yep. Yeah. He he plays Sergeant Gary Gordon, one of the Delta snipers that secures yes. the crash, the second crash site. Yep. Uh, gives his life. But that was one that I had never connected the dots on. And all of a sudden, Marissa kicks me and she's like, it's Jamie Lannister. <laughs> <laughs> and he, he and I will say this, uh, Shugart and Gary Gordon, the, the film notes at the end that they were the first soldiers since the Vietnam War to be awarded the Medal of Honor. They, when I came into basic, first of all, they were my two favorite characters in this movie, just based on what they did. Mm -hmm. But um, when I entered basic training, you're given, every soldier is given what's called a smart book. It's just a book of literally everything that a young soldier would need to know um, from how to wear the uniform to marksmanship principles. Mm -hmm. But at the very beginning, there were several vignettes or stories about Medal of Honor winners, and mm. two of them were Shugart and Gordon in my book. And I was such a huge fan. I went to basic training in uh, August of 2003, so this movie was barely over a year old, yep. I guess almost two years old. And I remember flipping to those pages, and I would just read their bio again and again, like the story of uh, of their actions there. So anyhow, he may be kind of a bastard in Game of Thrones, but quite good here <laughs> yeah absolutely <laughs> and tom sizemore we actually talked about in our last episode because he was in saving private ryan he's got a promotion here all the way up to lieutenant colonel yeah yeah not bad from sergeant <laughs> to lieutenant colonel so not too bad and he doesn't die which is also good <laughs> so um yeah so we we kind of talked about how this movie opened up with the food distribution scene the rules of engagement and then we got into the the capture of Otto in this. And th there's a very brief but meaningful exchange between him and Garrison. And uh, Tom, you actually brought one of his quotes uh, into here. So let's let's talk about that a bit. Yeah, so Otto tells General Garrison, I understand history. All this is shaping tomorrow. This is civil war, our war, not yours. And I think I didn't type it into the notes, but one of the significant bits of that conversation is Otto saying, you've been here, what, six weeks and you think you understand all of this? Mm -hmm. And that couldn't put a finer point on the entire movie if you tried. I mean, that was just such well-written dialogue there yeah. um, that I wouldn't be surprised if it was an actual quote from Otto. Uh, <laughs> Because that's just it. I mean, the, the thread that underlies almost everything leading up to the battle itself and, and really a lot of the, the battle itself is that we're it, the whole thing sort of feels like we're jumping into this. We're cowboying mm -hmm. into an operation. Uh, everybody's got their, their eyes focused on the prize and not really the, the fight that it's going to take to get there. Um, and 
they're stepping into a situation that they have very little experience in. They've got, uh, you know, little intel, little understanding of the enemy forces that they're facing, and an even smaller understanding of the dynamics on the ground there. Yeah. And, and this I, is, it's just, no, go ahead. I, I was just going to say, this is a movie that you can look at and examine and enjoy from so many different perspectives. And especially if you do a little bit of research just beyond what's in the movie itself. I mean, it's a great movie about tactics, close quarters, combat, urban warfare, that kind of stuff. And there were a ton of lessons learned from this engagement that were then applied to military tactics in those environments, which are still being used now and were used in places uh, like the urban areas of Afghanistan or Iraq or, or any place else that our forces have ended up. I mean, tons and tons of lessons learned. Um, even lessons learned on like trauma bleeding control, which is incredible. I mean, the stuff that we use now, like the quick clock kind of stuff, that stuff that they didn't have then, and a demand for that rose out of the after action of this, because just like you see in the movie, there were a lot of lives that could have been maybe saved had every soldier, not just medics, but every soldier had some very simple adjuncts on them to be able to stop bleeding. Of, and in fact, as, now as you said, see... it's all about the guy next to you. And if they could stop the bleeding of the guy next to them, they might have been better off. Yeah. And I think that's you hit the nail on the head there. Not only real world, you if you were to crack open the individual first aid kit of the average U.S. soldier and, and show it to one of those guys, I mean, they would be blown away. Yeah. They, we carry the average U.S. soldier now carries stuff that only medics carried. And, yep. and a lot of medics didn't even carry then. But I think more importantly, to the movie's point. Um, and, and I guess to the underlying operation, you had guys going down that had, they had some of those supplies could have gotten back in the fight. Mm -hmm. Certainly could have been saved. could prevent some of these casualties, Yeah, but that's just really fascinating. And there's also a big, uh, political perspective to this. And there's a lot of politics that are kind of an undertone really to a lot of things in this movie. And, you know, some of the quotes, some of the dialogue that, uh, who has with Eversman and some of the opening statements and, and also this discussion between Otto and Garrison about, you know, why the, the U.S. forces are there and what they're trying to do. And, you know, what Otto is claiming is a misunderstanding or a lack of understanding that the United States has over this, which, of course, Garrison counters with 300,000 civilians. That's not a civil war. That's a genocide. Yeah. You know, so Otto can spin this however he wants. There was a recognition, not just by the U.S., but by the international community that there's a genocide going on and it needed to get stopped. And and, and then there's obviously, I mean, there were politics going into this that spanned two presidents. Um, there are politics going out of this with an the, the decision on an immediate withdrawal uh, after this event occurred which I think we still feel the ramifications of today. I mean, Somalia is not a safe place. It's a haven for terrorists. Um, we've got, you know, the Somali pirates are very well known. In fact, what was, uh, uh, oh gosh, 
What was the movie on that that Tom Hanks was in? Oh, why am I blanking on that? I am the captain now. Yeah, I was going to say, poor Tom Hanks got captured all yeah. because <laughs> poor policy decisions here. I'm sure we have listeners like, hey, this is the title of the movie. Um, you try to sit in this seat and think of something. Yeah, exactly. On the fly, like <laughs> Captain Phillips. Captain Phillips, yes. Gosh, thank you. that was going to kill me. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, you, you have that. You have, um, I mean, a lot of terrorist attacks that continue to be carried out in Kenya which is a neighboring country to Somalia. And a lot of that is because of this continued state of things in Somalia. But even the deployment itself, and they mention this when they're planning the focal operation in this movie, the lack of resources that, you know, Washington in its infinite wisdom, I believe those were the, uh, the the words of general Garrison has uh, deemed it, you know, not necessary to have things like, uh, you know, C-130 gunships and, and, and other things that are kind of a standard of support for an operation like this. There were a lot of politics in this because there was congressional pressure to not be dedicating too many resources. They wanted the U.S. to contribute to this, but they didn't want us to lean too far forward. And to the point that Task Force Ranger was actually there largely unsupported. They were cooking their own meals they were maintaining their own equipment. Um, they didn't come with the plethora of uh, support units that would oftentimes accompany a mission like this. Um, Tom, I don't know what kind of insight you can provide. I mean, what what if if you have a significant unit that deploys, what what goes with them? Well, there are entire battalions, brigades uh, that are dedicated to logistical support whether that be laundry cooking it's easy to forget the machinery of war that it takes to to keep stuff going and when you don't have that you end up with situations like in the movie where eric banna has to go helicopter hunting for wild boar <laughs> <laughs> taxpayer funded safaris that's I guess right. is what captain Steele calls it that's right but yeah i mean you you have entire uh Chunks of ba- I mean, when I was deployed to Afghanistan, a significant number of troops on the base that I was on were were all support troops. T- to this day, uh, even special forces units, these like leaner units that deploy, still rely heavily on support forces sure. uh, in in a variety of capacities um, to, to do all that stuff. So uh, you're absolutely right, and it's it's fascinating because there's a, this trickle down effect, like big scale. You've got a, a question of appetite for a large-scale engagement like this. You're you're on the heels of the you know by all accounts wildly successful Gulf War mm-hmm. that that ended on a high. We're at peace at that time. It's easily easy to forget since we've been at war for eighteen, nineteen years here that there was a time where it wasn't common for U.S. forces to be out on the town, so to speak, around the world, yeah. uh, engaged in combat operations. But I think there was rightfully a significant debate about how how much to commit in a country like that um, over, over something that I think uh, in a lot of corners was seen as uh, an internal dispute, mm-hmm. no matter the scale of death there. But it's interesting, like to extend off your point as you're talking about this, you see threads of this in the movie at the the soldier level. Yeah. Um, 
their own opinions. Sarnevers men, uh, the you know one of your main characters, Josh Hartnett's character, gets picked on because he like he. They say he's sympathetic or he loves the skinnies, so to speak. And just that name, that derogatory name, skinnies, indicates or tells you all you need to know about sort of how they view the people there. Yeah. Um, they've sort of dehumanized certainly the militia uh, and, and Somalians just in general. And that sort of sense pervades task force ranger soldiers like at all levels. Even there's that quick scene where uh their informant is getting into place and he's all nervous and they're kind of garrison's kind of laughing at him and he's he looks to his uh i don't know if it's his xo or what but he's like or his dco and he says uh the last guy that we had do this shot himself playing russian roulette and the other officer just sort of smirks and shakes his head i mean that's that's the kind of like thought process that can really impact operations when you see things through that that sort of lens oh yeah yeah and and really, I mean, some very shaky intel that they were working on when they're relying on one local informant who they're paying, you know, a couple hundred bucks U.S., which, you know, probably puts these folks in a good position so long as they don't get killed. Yeah, when you see it, they've got no other intel. So he stops short and he's like, it's this building. And they're like, okay, it's this building. Are you sure this it's this building? He's like, well, uh, it's a couple <laughs> blocks down, but if I go any closer, they'll shoot me. Yeah. And this is all getting related. It's like the most ridiculous game of telephone that you've ever seen. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and Garrison has to say, like, I'll kill you myself yeah, if yeah. you don't go down there. Um. And so that, but that's your intel. That's what your your entire mission, what the lives of these guys are depending on, is uh, this one guy, and you don't have any other assets on the ground really to to verify that stuff. You're like, well, I I guess he's telling the truth. He popped his hood, and there, there's some smoke. So mm-hmm. <laughs> call Irene. Yeah. So the planning of this operation, there's some points that you brought in here in our notes. I mean, we've kind of already mentioned some of this lack of resources, which is largely political. The time of day, which I think is, that's just simply what it is. The intel is these lieutenants and uh, potentially Adid are meeting at this location at this time. I, you have to go with it. I mean, it's it's a daytime extraction, but it's what you have to work with. Similar to the location. The location is was kind of a given to them. This is in Bakara Market, which, as Garrison said, is the Wild West of of Mogadishu, it was just kind of the central hub of activity and very much a stronghold of Adid's forces. So it's just something that they had to go with. Um, you include in here a lack of rehearsals, which is something that especially Special Forces folks are going to do a lot of. I mean, when they get the intel, they look at, here's our building, here's our position, here's how we're going to come in that kind of stuff. And, and they just really didn't have a lot of time to do that. Right. Yeah. And I, I should say, I can't say for certain whether any, that no rehearsals were done. I don't want to pretend like this is the movie was a hundred percent historically accurate. Right. We're just going by what point. was portrayed. Right. But you, you don't see that sort of thing. And by a rehearsal, we mean like, Hey, you lay down a mock-up of, uh, you know, say the the hotel or the room where this is meeting, and you mm-hmm. walk through uh, everything that's going to happen. You get your your uh, you know take some hangar space, and you you get your rangers to to mock up how they would uh, 
defend the corners and their positions and and you plan out for stuff like hey what if a helicopter does go down what's our our plan here and and uh, let's practice this sort of stuff it's not like high concept things but it's just the the practice of making this stuff muscle memory yeah so that when bullets do start flying nobody has to ask what the plan is you've got it drilled into you and i think the i read the book before i ever saw the movie and my the last time I read it was probably like 2003, so my memory's a little fuzzy. But uh, there is a little more of a discussion in the book as to the just the environment that they were going in, whether it was time of day and whatnot. And it's kind of boiled down into one line from Colonel McKnight or Colonel Knight, uh, Tom Sizemore's character, uh, where they break from the briefing room and he's like, "Hey, you know what's." What's the matter? And he's like, oh, aside from the fact that we're going in in broad daylight while all these guys are hopped up on cot, which is this drug that that uh, I, I think the uh, the effect was or the feeling was that they could take more damage. They take this stuff, they'd get all hopped up. Mm-hmm. It's like a, a super stimulant and could take a bullet and just keep fighting while they had this stuff coursing through their system. So yeah. they're they're hopped up on this stuff. He's like, other than that, just you know, fine and dandy. <laughs> and I think what you lose there, you're right that in saying that this, the meetings happening during the daytime. So if you want to hit this and do a one-stop shop, it is what it is, but you lose the tactical advantage of yeah. a nighttime strike where you've got the element of not just surprise, but a tactical advantage with stuff like night vision. Yeah. And that's um, a big thing. I mean, they wouldn't have had a whole lot of surprise roaring in, with the same deployment scheme, uh, you know, with the Blackhawks and Little Birds and such, because the whole damn city hears it. <laughs> yeah. But certainly um, it, in terms of night vision and just being good tactical operators, that would have increased their advantage even more. But when I like as they're flying, you're, you're absolutely right. Those like the Blackhawks, not exactly a, a quiet helicopter. But as they're flying in, you talk about like a lack of intel about the enemy. They've got an early warning network set up. Yeah. I mean, they, they've got that little kid that's sitting on a hillside with a cell phone. Yep. I just love that scene where he he does the call, and then you get like the five year old that has the cell phone. He goes running, and just drops it down. Yeah, and Adid Lieutenant just wakes up like pissed off and grabs the like Zach Morris size cell phone. Yeah, <laughs> and then they all mount up. But like that, those are precious moments. I mean, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, but like. They burn the tires. Uh, they've been able to. What's that? Burning the tires. Yeah, but that set all that stuff off. I mean, it, it that set the, the that stuff off in sequence. Yep. And you see, as the helicopters are flying over in the movie, they're like waving at that kid. Oh yeah, and he's yeah. a spotter. You know, and <laughs> like today, I, they'd have opened fire. I mean, that's a no matter how old that that kid is, they'd have done something to to try to disrupt that. Yeah. Uh, whether it was use of force or jamming or something like yep. that. So, and yeah, I, a little it, bit of um, you know bridging the movie back to reality with this. So there was actually a Black Hawk Down scenario that occurred about two weeks prior to this operation, where the Somali militia uh, took out with an RPG a Tenth Mountain Black Hawk, uh, and I believe there are a couple of soldiers that were lost in that. So from that point forward, Task Force Ranger did have plans for a Black Hawk Down scenario. 
but of course the complexity of dealing with things in Mogadishu, like we see in the movie with the roadblocks and the narrow streets and just the density of everything is really incredible. I mean, they, they had a plan and they made it happen. Mm. You know, they knew right away what they were doing. Hey, we're going to send this group of people out on foot to go secure the crash site. And they started those things in motion immediately. But I think it was just a hell of a lot harder than they expected it to be. Yeah. And I think the the most visceral example of that is as the convoy is trying to get to the second crash site, it's just roadblock after roadblock Mm -hmm. and they're getting relayed. Uh, directions from the air, which is a phenomenal <laughs> point that I hope we talk about a little more. Oh yeah. But they're like, yeah, just turn right here. And they're like, we can't, Yeah, <laughs> there's nothing, there's no way to get through. And they're like, well, you, the only other way is to go all the way around the city. And finally, Hoot decides to get out and move in on foot. Yep. And that's sort of the, I, I think you're absolutely right. Cause you see very little hesitation to execute the rescue plan or the, you know, plan to secure those crash sites. But in practice, it it became really, really difficult and just ground the whole operation to a halt almost. Yeah. So you mentioned here, and and what they show in the movie is um, some of these younger guys who have a lot less experience and they're, they're, they're eager to get into the fight. But of course, they don't know what they don't know. So, I mean, you see these guys, they're filling canteens, they're packing night vision, all the stuff that obviously they should be packing and in hindsight a lot of people are thinking damn why didn't i bring that stuff um you know but they're kind of getting made fun of by the guys who have been there for a whole six weeks saying (laughs) hey you're not gonna need that we're gonna be back in an hour you don't have to bring that make yourself light don't get shot in the back anyway but you have to wonder how much of this and again maybe this is kind of bridging things back to to real life a little bit Combat experience aside, because a lot of the younger guys simply might not have it, but to be ranger qualified is still a significant thing. There's a lot of training that goes on into that. I think that there was kind of an attitude that these guys had of, you know, uh, there's a quote in there like, oh, well, generally speaking, the skinnies can't shoot anyway. Mm Mm-hmm. And this, uh, we're, we're in and out in an hour. This is a quick grab and go mission, that kind of stuff. And just really just failing to actually capture what could go wrong with this. I, I, what am I trying to say here, Tom? (laughs) No, I think it's like uh, this, you get this toxic mix of a lack of experience including from some of the leadership that doesn't have combat experience and a perception of what they think it will be like or or a desire, like an overriding desire to get into the fight. And I think you see time and again that some of these soldiers are so excited to get out there and like do what they think combat is. Yeah, yeah. Sort of what they signed up for, um, their, their romanticized version of it that they lose sight of their training. Because I guarantee you, uh, you know, a, a, an average Ranger Battalion soldier is drilled on a mission like that to take, uh, you know, X, Y, and Z equipment. That's why you saw, like, their, you know, some of those young soldiers, like, their default was filling the canteen, yeah. grabbing the night vision devices. And 
you, <laughs> you made the point of like some of these guys that were there a whole six weeks, you start to get this complacency, yes. right? And it's ridiculous to think that in a month and a half that could set in, but you saw it with Grimes character. Mm-hmm. Oh, he's yeah. like, you know, when he's, he's checking Blackburn in, he's like, first of all, it's the Moog. Like, don't call it Mogadishu. Like, <laughs> okay, guy. Like, <laughs> freaking you're newbies. long in the tooth here having been here since <laughs> what august i guess yeah but yeah but it pervades everything and and as they're kidding up to go some of that responsibility has to fall on folks like eversman to, to yeah. step in and to say like no these are this is the standard packing list for this mission we're not stripping down uh because of anything yeah and that's where you prevent uh, things like, you know, this perception that they're going to be back in two hours or, or whatever. You start contingency planning. Yep. Um, and and you just override some of that. But, yeah. Uh, and you don't where you don't see that from some of the Delta soldiers who, uh, hmm. you know, they're packing what they need. Maybe except for the I don't think you see any of them with night vision until they come back from the first refit. But they're doing what they need to do, and I. <laughs> I forget who says it, but he's there. One of them is like pointing out one of the Delta soldiers. He's like, look, he's taping his blood type to his boot. Like what a crazy guy. And they're like, no, actually that's smart. All the Delta guys do do that. And I think the book goes into this a little bit more, but there's this like, it's hard to really encapsulate the relationship that, that is depicted in the book between the Rangers and Delta, but the the operators from Delta are really looked up to, Mm -hmm. even though the the ranger bat soldiers are within the special forces community there's this like uh almost like a caste system sure it's not really like that in practice but it's almost like you know these delta guys are are very much looked up to and so he's like no all the delta guys do this and I'm like oh, okay where's the duct tape let me get <laughs> let me get it right my blood type down yeah so the um they they get all kitted up they're ready to go they're waiting for the Operation Go word, which is? Fucking Irene. Irene, I'm man. Sorry if you get... Uh, so, you know, you, you have uh, Walcott's great uh, pilot speech that he gives about, <laughs> you know, frequent flyer miles and such. And um, so they take off. They're, they're making their way along the coast and then, then into the city. And when you actually look at a map, I, I pulled up a map of... Mogadishu, and it totally makes sense because they uh, task force ranger occupied the Mogadishu airport, and they truly would fly up the coast a little bit and then kind of hang a, a left and get themselves into going into the city. So it totally worked. I don't know if that was intentional or not, but from the cinematography, it actually did line up. And actually, mentioned the vast majority, if not all, of this movie was actually filmed in Morocco probably wasn't a good idea for Jerry Bruckheimer and, and others to be kicking around Somalia. So they had to find a place that would kind of match <laughs> up well for them. So you needed a, you know, coastal area with that type of architecture and all that kind of stuff. And so that uh, Morocco worked out well for them. So they get in there, uh, they get to the, uh, was it the Olympic hotel, which was the target building. And so they're they're deploying in. So you have the Delta guys who are deploying differently from the Rangers, right? The mm-hmm. Delta folks, um, they're on 
they're basically riding sideboards on little birds. And they're deploying onto the roof of the hotel, whereas each of the ranger chalks are uh, fast roping into positions to take up the corners around the hotel. Yeah, and it's a, when you break it down and just chart, like map this operation out, arguably it was fairly straightforward. Mm-hmm. Right? You know, they Delta goes in, their their job is to secure and capture these prisoners. You bring in the convoy to get the prisoners out. Rangers provide security and easy peasy, right? When it's when it's on paper. Should be. Uh, and it starts out that way. I mean, they don't run into a whole lot of resistance immediately that the Delta operators go in and I, I don't even think I think they have a minimal amount of resistance. You see them kill a a couple militia members in the hallway, Mm -hmm. but largely, I mean, they bust in the meeting and it's like, it's a quick shot, but the, the lieutenants almost look like they're like, ah, damn it. Like, yeah, (laughs) (laughs) they got here. (laughs) We figured this was coming. Um, and I think the, the best part of that whole sequence is as the convoy is sitting there like waiting to go. I don't mean to steal one of the funniest moments, but they're, they're taking pot shots and is it Pilla that's up in the gunner's turret? Yeah. One of the gunners is sitting there and he's, uh, Colonel Knight is, or McKnight is looking down the other way and he's like, hey, sir, are, uh, are we shooting? They're, they're shooting at us. He's like, well, shoot back. Yeah. <laughs> and he opens up the 50 cal. But yeah, so I, you know, that's sort of the first like taste of it. And they don't even know like how to respond. And then finally stuff starts to open up and unfortunately go downhill pretty quickly, starting with Blackburn falling out of the, the Blackhawk. Yeah. And, and Blackburn falls because there's an RPG that's uh, shot at the Blackhawk. The pilot kind of has to jink a little bit to, to avoid getting hit. That puts Blackburn off balance. He didn't have his grip yet on the rope. He falls. So, that now creates an, a, an incident within this whole mission that they're having to deal with. And then as um, while that's being addressed and the targets are being captured and taken out of the building to wait for the extraction convoy, you've got these Blackhawks that are basically just circling the area to provide whatever support if it's called on. And uh, one of them, Super 6-1, does get hit with an RPG and goes down several blocks away in the city. So that convoy comes in, the extraction convoy comes in, um, which was, uh, that was, uh, what, Shugart's column, right, initially? Mm-hmm. And uh, so he comes in to do the extraction. They, they load up uh, the targets that they were there to get. And they start to kind of reorganize and say, okay, we're going to send these chalks out to on foot to the crash site of Super 6-1 to go secure it. And while all this mechanation is happening, 6-4, which is also there flying uh, support, then gets hit and goes down in another part of the city. Both of those are just such visceral scenes. Oh, yeah. The, the first one... Because it's so, I mean, they they get hit and it's, there's no question. I mean, there's no question that they're not going to be able to save the bird. And it, the switching shot between watching the helicopter spin out of control physically there 
uh, like outside the, the helicopter or in the cockpit as all the uh, soldiers are hanging on, or uh, on the ISR feed, the satellite feed or the, the overhead feed that General Garrison is watching back in the, the talk um, at the airport. I mean, it's just, you can tell everybody's, it's just one of these like uh, choices in cinematography that really sends home the weight of the moment. Oh, yeah. And talk about this is one thing that I thought the uh, that translated very well on the screen. Um, there, the book talks a lot about Walcott and just his skill as a pilot and his calmness. And you see it on screen there because as there, he knows that they're going down and uh, the chances of surviving a crash like that mm. um, are low. And he's cool as a cucumber oh, yeah. as they're doing this whole thing. And he gives the line, you know, are you going to switch those PCMs offline or what? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's just, you know, not an ounce of panic in his voice despite the, the circumstances and knowing that on some level that he might not make it through this. And in fact, he dies on impact. Yeah. And very similar for uh, Durant's aircraft, 6-4. As they're going down, he's just, you know, we're going down. Six yeah. four is going down. We're going down. <laughs> and that would even like just more steady so ass calm. And you know, like you said, real professional. He knows what's happening. And you know, I'm sure you've been in your fair share of of helicopters. Um, I used to crew chief a medevac, and you know, helicopters are not resilient machines because <laughs> once the shit that keeps them up stops happening. You have no fucking hope. Um, I mean, it's not like, you know, a fixed wing aircraft that can glide in if you have a reasonably good pilot. Once shit stops spinning, you just drop like a rock. I mean, there's yeah. there's no hope. Yeah, and you're, you're not sitting on a whole lot of cushion there either. I mean, there's not much between that no. pilot and the ground or, for that matter, the, uh, the soldiers that are in the, uh, the back area. And if you've ever been in a Black Hawk, it's pretty sparse. The seats, oh, yeah. I mean, they're crash seats. Uh, there, there's not much in the way. And I don't even, I'm trying to think to the scene. I don't even think that they had the crash seats in there just to, to cram some more soldiers on there. They were all just sort of hanging on. Yep. And uh, that just adds to it. In fact, as 6-1 goes down, I forget the name of the, the Delta operator, but he's hanging on and half his body is like out the door as this thing is spinning. Oh yeah. And yet he still manages to, to get himself up and engage targets. Yep. Uh, after they crash. Um, but yeah, and I talk about like the, the impact of those two, you, you certainly feel it with six one and they sort of all switch into, uh, you know, rescue mode, so to speak. But Garrison puts a point on it when he says we've lost the initiative. Mm hmm. And that's sort of a turning point in the entire movie because everybody's focus before that point had been like, let's get the fuck out of here. We got, we got these guys, uh, we got the targets, let's get out of here. This has been a, a, a pretty successful operation overall minus uh, Blackburn. Let's go. And then all of a sudden you're like, well, shit, like that's watching that helicopter go down is the moment where I think the, like visage of invi invincibility that I think they walked yeah. in there with started to crack. Yeah. And that was a huge moment for the psyche of those guys. And I think I, the general rightly recognized that. 
Certainly with the second one going down. Absolutely. So the interesting thing is that kind of like the centerpiece of this film, which is really all the, and again, from a cinematic perspective as a viewer, we're now into what is the most intense and arguably the coolest part of the movie with this like just this series of incredible firefights and you get to see all this tactical stuff and you just feel like you're in it with, with how well it was put together. Um, we actually have like almost no, nothing in our show notes about that. We just kind of gloss over that. Um, even though that's the biggest thing and we could probably go on forever talking about a lot of that stuff, but I mean, Tom, what, what comes to mind for you with that, part of the movie i mean we're looking at probably 45 minutes of the movie if not more Mm -hmm. is just fucking firefight (laughs) it's incredibly intense i think they i think the reason that this movie is so effective even now is that much like saving private ryan it it doesn't pull any punches right um this isn't the kind of movie that's going to portray American soldiers as these invincible like heroes. I think it, it takes a pretty unflinching view at some of the gray areas that you hit uh, in combat operations. Mm-hmm. I, the, the scene that immediately jumps to mind is as, Oh, I'm trying to think of his name. I forget the soldier that links up with uh, Twombly, but he stumbles into this schoolhouse Nelson. and they're Nelson. Yep. And there are a bunch of scared children and the teacher there, and he's being sort of pursued by this older guy and a child soldier. And mm-hmm. as he's leaving the school, he slips and the child soldier just guns, I don't know if it's his dad or his uncle or his buddy down. And, you know, he's just holding him crying as Nelson runs off um, down to the, it's still hard for me to watch this, like the um, the knifing scene in, at the end of the same Private Ryan, but the surgery on Smith mm. or the attempted surgery where they're trying to close off his artery. Yeah. Um, you know, it doesn't pull any of those punches. Uh, and it's, I think the biggest thing that changed for me in watching this sort of before I joined. And then now is that I remember getting like real amped up and like excited for probably the same reasons that a lot of those young soldiers were excited for as I watched this movie. And now, sort of the weight of a lot of that stuff hits you um, a lot more. Sure. And that could be just being older too. Um, well, but yeah. yeah, it's, yeah, it wasn't as fun as I remember it <laughs> being to watch like way back when. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's certainly, you know, as time goes on, I think you get older and you have some different experiences and you, you watch a movie like this and you have a lot more, empathy for what's going on you're you feel that you're not just an observer you know you're not just on the other side of the camera you're really empathizing and relating a lot to what's going on out there and the intensity of it and you know quite honestly the the randomness of things in combat i mean you 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 can you can have all the body armor on that you want and you know the dude next to you takes around through the eye I mean, it's yeah. like, you know, just crazy shit like that. When Hoot, I, to your point there, because it's a very good one, uh, he's 
there's that moment that he has with Eversman in sort of their uh, like hasty little casualty collection point that mm-hmm. they've set up. And he says, you're thinking, don't. Yeah. Uh, you don't get to decide what happens. Uh, it's war. You, you can't control who gets hit and who doesn't. And I thought that because the entire movie, his character in particular is a really interesting one. Oh, yeah. Because he gives off this air like, I don't give a fuck. Yeah. And he he sort of explains it at the end and kind of links it all together where uh, he's like, you know, I go back home and folks ask me, friends ask me, why do you do it? Are you some kind of war junkie? And he's like, I don't say anything because they'll never understand. Yep. And I think that just so beautifully encapsulates his character. But it, it ties all that stuff together that. Um, you know, his calmness is a lot like, uh, and why am I blanking on our favorite officer's name from Band of Brothers? Uh, the death embodied. Oh, oh um, uh, start with an S. Spears. Spears. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> we work so well together. <laughs> no, but I, I, like, I genuinely think they, their characters mesh a little bit in the sense that they recognize that they are in a an insane chaotic environment yep and that you've got to do your best not to to like look at big picture stuff like the politics or anything mm-hmm. but to watch out for that guy beside you and that's what it really boils down to for him that he can cut past all that other nonsense and they're also both i mean two of the deadliest but also the quietest guys <laughs> yeah. um respectively so you know, really interesting. And who doesn't have a whole lot of dialogue, but they use him to give a lot of exposition for the film and to, I mean, he, he's kind of the embodiment of the Delta guys. He clashes a couple of times with captain steel. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, once is, uh, back in the airfield where he's talking, you know, where steel approaches him cause he has a hot weapon. But then the other one is actually out on the streets where, you know, these guys are completely pinned down and, you know, and steel is this, you know, real gritty experienced guy. You know that like, I mean, he's the guy who you would want with you because he's going to slug it out to the end. But who also knows the enemy has a superior position and they will eventually wipe us out if we don't move. We have to move. So who kind of commandeers a bunch of guys and says, okay, you do this, you do this, you cover me, you do this. And you can tell Steele's about to blow his freaking top because <laughs> Hooch just like suddenly giving orders and doing his own thing. Um, and, and, you know, who got them moving? Who took out the enemies that were in a superior position? And, you know, now these guys could actually, you know, have some breathing room. But... There was a lot of clashing between those two guys, and it wasn't that Hoot was trying to be an asshole. He just was thinking through things tactically, and he's like, okay, this is what we need to do. Yeah, and Steele's an interesting character because he goes on – I don't mean to, to bridge this outside of the movie, but he, he went on to uh, to serve for quite a while yeah. uh, and, and actually served in Operation Iraqi Freedom and – I had a, um, you know, it didn't end up in any charges for him, but he had some soldiers that were uh, accused of executing some Iraqis. Mm. And 
they testified that he gave them the order to kill all military age males. Um, but his character mm-hmm. in the movie is, I, first of all, I think Jason Isaacs does a phenomenal oh, yeah. job of portraying him. Uh, you almost wouldn't know it was Jason Isaacs unless you like were familiar with the, like really familiar with the actor. Yeah. But um, he, in watching his headbutting with the Delta soldiers and then his um, efforts to sort of navigate this, this chaos, uh, I think really does a service to his character. The, the moment where um, I'm trying to think of the, the uh, Delta soldier that's yelling at him that they need to move Sanderson, uh, Sanderson uh, telling him, we got to go. You guys need to just keep up and steals the only <laughs> one that that's got the wherewithal and, and really the, the perspective to say, look, we're combat ineffective. We are not, we've got too many wounded to move it's not a matter of like my rangers can't keep up with you yeah this is just the reality of the situation yep and you know quickly they pivot set up a casavac or uh, uh, a casualty collection point rather and uh you know get a, a patrol together but uh you know he's a great character and then he ends up r- literally running out of the city with the last remaining rangers yeah. at the end which is quite fitting. And that scene that you were just talking about between Steele and Sanderson was also a great one because Steele was so pissed off at Sanderson, you know, like, don't you ever give me an order. Mm-hmm. But then also was able to realize, okay, Sanderson has a point. We still have a mission to accomplish and said, okay, you're going to take some of my Rangers and you're going to go do some shit. Yeah. And, you know, so Steele was able, still able to see kind of the big picture with that which I thought was was really great. And so these guys are are stuck in their positions overnight. They're getting some assistance. Um the uh the podcasts uh, the the spear that I mentioned earlier uh in one of the interviews there they mentioned that those helicopter pilots were flying for about 18 hours straight during this entire engagement. Uh, so obviously they're, you know, they're flying, doing whatever support they are doing, whether they're spotting, whether they're actually uh, providing cover fire, whatever. They go back to the airport, they refuel, they refit. These guys, you know, chug some water, grab a sandwich, take a leak and jump back in the bird and go back. 18 hours of flying is a long freaking time. That's crazy. And you know, there's a lot of credit given to these guys uh, in in the gun runs that they are doing and that kind of stuff to keep the enemy suppressed and and their strength reasonably down. The fact that they were doing it all without Grimes there to brew coffee is also pretty <laughs> exactly significant. I think exactly. We we haven't talked about it before, but sort of the what was supposed to be one of the linchpins of the operation. McKnight's convoy mm-hmm. really you talk about the chaos of war like I, I could think of other than the two helicopters that went down no other force there that got affected as much as that convoy you just like oh they by the end of it destroyed. by the end of it like you don't even want to get into a Humvee ever <laughs> just like I mean you just feel for those guys. there were a couple of scenes with them going as fast as they possibly could down the street and there's militia shooters 
shooting from the windows and the roofs of the buildings surrounding them. And they're just, I mean, there's nothing you can do but take fire. You yeah. know, the, I mean, the, the guys up top on the 50s, they're really only able to keep the heads down of the of the militia while they're passing by. I mean, that's pretty much the best they could do. You know, that speed, you're not hoping to actually get anyone. And, of course, I say at that speed. That speed was probably, what, 25, 30 miles an hour. Yeah. Um, so it wasn't, like, blisteringly fast, but that was as fast as they could go, given the conditions that they were in. And, you know, we, we were talking before we recorded about just that communication, that whole communication relay that was going on, you know, and, and, and they're they're telling McKnight, hey, you need to take it right. Well, I just passed the street <laughs> and, you know, you need to give me the orders faster. And, and the, uh, the, 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 the guy in the in the spotter bird, he's like, well, you need to slow down. I can't slow down. I'm getting a <laughs> shit shot out of me. Yeah. You know, so it's just like frustration all around. And, you know, just McKnight's resolve in this. I mean, his driver gets freaking blinded by something hitting the windshield of of the Humvee. And, you know, so he's just like, he just grabs the steering wheel. He's like, keep your foot on the gas. <laughs> just keep going. And then like a scene later, other moment he yells over and he says, stop. <laughs> <laughs> like wiping the glass fragments out of his face. Yeah. I love that he's yelling to get the 50 up. And one of the soldiers is like, but I'm wounded, sir. And he's like, we're all fucking wounded. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, Mc McKnight takes around to the neck. Um, there was a driver, one of the other Humvees, who took a uh, an RPG that ended up in his abdomen. Yeah. Pier pierced the door, lodged in his abdomen, did not detonate. And, uh, you know, whoever was riding shotgun is like... You know, there's a fucking mortar in him, sir. He's like, it's a live <laughs> round. Get the hell out of the goddamn vehicle. <laughs> <laughs> but he doesn't leave him behind either. No. He loads him up and like very gingerly or as gingerly as you can. And they truck on. Yeah. Uh, I mean, those guys were just shot up. I mean, you know, they were talking later on um, at the end of the movie when they when the uh, UN convoy reached him that. You know, the, the APCs were just bullet magnets and, mm -hmm. you know, same thing for these Humvees. Uh, I mean, it's just such an obvious thing to shoot at. When you're not talking about the up armored versions that we have, that, that we've had since, you know, the middle of the Iraq war, mm -hmm. I mean, these were your stock standard Humvees. And if you look at a modern Humvee or even a modern MRAP or something, the the level of protection offered to that gunner is so much more significant than what they had there. I mean, basically you're, you're looking at these guys that are just swinging around in an open turret. Uh, they're firing a big gun, but at the same time, they don't have a lot in the way of protection. Yeah. Uh, and I, quite honestly, the, the protection that they're wearing, the, the uh, flak vests that they're wearing are nothing like what's worn today. It's not going to stop a neck round or something like right. that, but the average mm -hmm. soldier today wears, a ton more personal protective gear. Oh yeah, uh, than what they had then. Yeah, quite a bit. So and, uh, there's, yeah, uh, that's this is going back to the beginning. But when Pilla goes down, I mean, it's just uh, absolute insanity as he's taking fire from all directions, and uh, 
you know, ultimately succumbs to it. But yep. yeah, I, and there's one scene where they've actually, there's not even a window. They've taken the windows out of the Humvee so that they can fire out of it. Yep. But uh, that's that's not something that you see a lot in Afghanistan or Iraq these days. <laughs> For other reasons, but still. Yeah, so I, I mean, there's just so much in this central like i said 45 minutes or so that goes it's you know the afternoon and and overnight uh and all these you know different operations that are going on whether they're pinned down whether they're moving they're holding the crash site there's a lot of stuff going on um we we had the instance of the uh couple of delta snipers who wanted to secure mm-hmm. the second crash site and you know, Garrison having a very direct conversation with them saying, you, you know what you're asking for, right? I cannot guarantee when anyone else is going to arrive. It's just you two down there. And, uh, you know, obviously those guys got down there and they got, uh, Mike Durant out and, uh, they ended up, you know, dying in the effort to, to protect them. Yeah, that's that's probably my single favorite scene in the entire film, other than the cinematography of the helicopters as they approach Mogadishu when the mission starts. Uh, That is my favorite scene because you just know there's no music that plays Mm -hmm. as they're circling and making their second or third request to get dropped in. Yeah. And, you know, it's Garrison's on the line with them because it's a it's a request to commit suicide effectively. Yeah, pretty much. You know, with with the amount of forces that were closing in on that helicopter, um, but you know they were doing it because they knew Durant or, or somebody was down there potentially alive and worth saving. Yeah. Uh, and it's just it's hard to wrap your brain around that kind of thought process. And for them, it was automatic. I mean, that yeah. you saw them; they had no hesitation. They knew exactly what they were doing, and I think what really puts a fine point on it is when uh, Jamie Lannister (laughs) or uh, (laughs) Gordon, Sergeant Gordon goes down. uh, Shugart runs over to, to give his M4 to Durant Mm -hmm. and just says, Gordy's gone, man. And uh, I'll be outside. Good luck. Good luck. Yeah. He knows what's coming. He knows exactly how much ammo he's got. And that scene still gets to me where he finally goes down. I mean, I, they probably killed, you know, two dozen, three dozen yeah. uh, soldiers, probably more than that, or militia members before they were finally taken. And then, um, of course, you have the movie effect that, that very often happens that people don't realize how difficult it is to shoot with a handgun at a distance. Yeah. And of course, you know, this guy, sniper or not, because a handgun's a totally different device, is like killing dudes at like 30 yards away, just like, <laughs> boom, one shot to the head. One shot, nothing. it's like, <laughs> yeah. it doesn't really work that way, but, you know, I, we, yeah, we, we, yeah. we get it. We get it. Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> and then um, it still gets me watching their bodies get taken out and stripped down. And that's something that actually happened Yeah. Uh, in the real life situation that the militia and the crowd uh kind of paraded them around really unceremoniously yeah um but yeah i i was gonna put that to you i so i put my favorite scene in the movie out there what would yours be oh gosh um i i like the 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 nighttime 
work. Um, there's there's a couple scenes there. I, I first of all love the one where after the group that went out with the convoy got to refit and they came in and they're sneaking up behind the mechanical <laughs> and you know and they they take out the gunners who are operating it and all that stuff. I I thought that was really great. Um, and then just to see, you know, the devastating firepower, the mini guns, um, yeah. off of those little birds at night when they just are running by and they're strafing that, that building, um, that, that was, <laughs> you know, giving those guys a lot of heartache and, you know, you just see some really awesome firepower with that. And, and that was, that was fantastic. And it's just cool to see, you know, you got that coordination and be, between forces and, and a lot of stuff going on there. Uh, it it just it's the whole damn movie i it really is it, it's so hard to to like pinpoint anything but you know i i really did like a lot of the the night ops and how they shot it in particular i, I thought was really good so yeah you know there there was a lot of stuff happening with this and and you know garrison um the evening of the first day decided okay you know, our, our guys aren't going to be able to make it in for this exfil. We need to call the UN and get their forces to come in. And so we have through his XO who he sends out, uh, to the, uh, the stadium just outside the city, which was in the, the safe zone. He's negotiating with the, uh, UN commander there who is a Pakistani general, I believe about you know what was going on and of course they're kind of giving him a hard time saying hey you know you didn't deem it necessary to tell us about this operation in the first place we weren't ready we don't have a qrf or anything so it's going to take us a little while to outfit and get out there um you know which garrison acknowledges and he says hey it's i i understand that but I'm the commander of my forces and it's my responsibility to make sure they're taken care of. So I'm making this request. And this, uh, this, this UN group was largely comprised of Malaysians, Pakistani, and, uh, also the 10th mountain, which is kind of near and dear to my heart since they're, you know, I mentioned West <laughs> point, just a couple hours South of me, uh, the 10th mountain, just a couple hours North of me up in Fort drum. So, you know, having spent a good part of my life living and working around, uh, a lot of the folks up with the with the tenth mountain has um just kind of been a thing for me so uh so you know the convoy makes it in the next morning they get the dead and the wounded uh evacuated in in the convoy there's no room for anyone else uh to get on there they have some cut scenes over to the crash sites as the crash sites get fully secured they're able to uh pull the bodies of the KIAs out of the helicopters and then demo the, uh, d demo the birds. Mm -hmm. Um, this is where we get, I think like the one line from Ty Burrell, um, who's <laughs> actually gonna make him. What's that? He's going to make a margaritas. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and he's actually, uh, his character is actually, um, an air force medic. Um, they don't go into too much the other services involved in this, but it truly was a joint operation. They had some Air Force, they had some uh, Navy Special Forces in that, and a lot of stuff. Um, they focused in the movie mostly on the, uh, the the Rangers and the Delta folks 
who are involved in this, but it was it was a pretty broad joint operation. So um, anything you want to mention about the end of the film? I thought it was fascinating. Just, you know, it's frustrating when you get to that that point of the film where politics are still playing a role, where the Pakistani general who feels slighted that he yep. wasn't informed mm-hmm. that Task Force Ranger was going in says, well, it's going to take some time to get my guys together. Like, you know, you, you can't even put it away, so to speak, for a second yep. to <laughs> help some fellow soldiers out. And, you know, it's interesting because Marissa was like, well, why wouldn't t- the 10th Mountain just go in to assist? And as a unique aspect of that command structure, they probably reported to that Pakistani general mm-hmm. as part of those UN forces. And so the commander wouldn't have, the, the 10th Mountain commander on the ground there wouldn't necessarily have had the authority to commit his forces independently. Um, or at least there would have had to been some coordination there um, for him to just go in. And uh, I thought that was interesting. I, I had forgotten that the last contingent of Rangers had to run out of the damn city. I, for some reason, just totally forgot that scene and just assumed that they would find an APC and jump on. But that jackass uh, APC driver says they're full up and to get on top, like get on the roof if they wanted to ride. And then they end up having to run all the way out of the city while under fire up to the stadium. And the scene, as they finally make it to the stadium, it's almost like the end of a race. Like if you've ever run a 5K. It's so surreal. 10K or something. It's just bizarre. They've got kids that kind of come out of the mist and run up to them. And then there are all these, uh, you know, just normal Somalians that are like, yeah, you made it. Like we were waiting on you. Uh, Did you set a personal record or anything like that? Collect your medal over there and (laughs) And then got some bananas. I mean, you have the very interesting cultural thing also where you you have – as soon as they make it into the stadium, there are a a number of Pakistanis – who are dressed in white and they've got a towel draped over their arm and they have a tray with glasses of water. Yeah. And it's like this, such a surreal thing because these guys for, you know, almost, well, 18 hours, I guess, were stuck in the city fighting for their lives, dirt and grime and blood and all that shit all over the place. And then now you walk into this environment, which is, especially with the camera work on this, where they focused in on these guys with the water. And it's like, it's almost like <laughs> a sterile environment. And it's just that the contrast between it was incredible. It's like, yeah. what, what the fuck? You're just like, <laughs> this doesn't fit. It doesn't match. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, these these guys running out and, and you really feel for them because you're like, these guys are exhausted they've been in the fight of their lives for the last 18 hours. And, you know, now they're forced to, to, to get out of there. And the convoy was kind of supposed to stick with them, but then the convoy accelerated as soon as they hit open road. Yeah. And now these guys are stuck out there and they're getting, you know, strafed and sniped and, and all that by, you know, other militia around them. And it's just, nuts it's like you're thinking wow hey it's finally over but no it's not over you're still getting bullets run the mogadishu mile yeah yeah (laughs) and then they they call that the mogadishu mile it just just nuts absolutely nuts and of course you know in the end who it's like yeah i'm you know 
grabbing a sandwich and some water and I'm going to re-outfit and I'm going to go back out there. There's, there's still some guys out there. Yeah. Um, and then if, you know, you have the, the, the hospital scene with the blood and, and general garrison and, uh, very, you know, self contemplative. And that's, that's such a, I, I believe that's a little bit on the nose that he, he takes that hospital gown and starts to mop, try to mop up some of the blood mm-hmm. and it just smears around and it's sort of like an embodiment of their entire presence there yeah. that they've come in to help try to repair this wound in this civil war and really what have they done but just kind of uh, you know spill a little more blood and, and maybe stem the flow a little bit yeah. um, but I guess at the end uh, the general that they were after doesn't even get killed until 96 yeah it takes him another three years to get caught up to. You know, they, they kind of wind the movie down and they throw some narrative up and, and they, they talk about the casualties that were involved in it and, and all that. We had 19 U.S. soldiers killed, uh, which included two from the 10th Mountain, which occurred during the extraction. 73 in all were wounded. This is largely a, a force of 160 soldiers that, that went in in this operation. Uh, you had a Malaysian soldier killed and seven wounded in the, again, in the extraction and one Pakistani killed and two wounded. Um, depending on where you're getting your figures from and, and what folks are considering, they're estimating Somali casualties were as high as 2000 from this. Um, obviously not all militia. There were a lot of civilians and, you know, they even show in the film, one of the crash sites that there was like this crowd of people running down the street to the crash site, which was comprised of, of not only militia, but they said, yeah, there's women and children among them too. You know, with the population density that was there and the seeming like lack of sense for personal safety that some of the civilians were getting into, like they're unarmed. They're just like walking into the middle of these gunfights like you don't think you're going to get hit. Um, I, the, the, the Adid's militia didn't give a shit about these people. So certainly, you know, the militia didn't care if they were shooting any of these people. And as far as our soldiers, you know, you're taking out the threat. You're not focused on the three people that are standing behind them. Um, you know, so you're, you're doing what you can. And then, you know, when you're looking at things that are a little more blunt instrument, like the mini guns, uh, coming in on the strafing runs, I mean, they just are obliterating everything that's there. You know, I mean, they're they're hoping that most of their rounds hit militia, and anything else is secondary to it. Um, well, if you're up on the roof of a Mogadishu building in the middle of that firefight <laughs> on that particular night, you got either some bad luck, like exceptionally bad luck, or you're a militia member. <laughs> pretty much. Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. Some of this you just kind of don't understand. We talked about some of the funniest moments. I'm going down the list here. I, I love that moment that you have General Garrison coming up to the helicopter as they get ready to take off. And he says, good luck, boys. Be careful. Nobody gets left behind and Grimes just kind of freaks out. <laughs> he's like, he's just never done that before. Yep. Uh, and we, we talked about the, the convoy, uh, poor Nelson, that his 
loss of hearing will never not be funny to me. Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Him and I, I mean, uh, this really great moment of levity that they put into this, that that, that was really good. That was really yeah, good. He's, when, what's better is, is uh, once they link up, they're yelling at each other. They're like, they, they almost shoot one of their fellow rangers. <laughs> and uh, he yells at him. He's like, you fucking assholes. You almost shot yeah. me. And he's like, they're like, come to us. And he's like, fuck, fuck you, you. Come, come to, to me. me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yep. yeah, that's, that's one of my favorite parts in the whole movie. Pila's is bittersweet. His, his imitation of steel is, is pretty funny as Captain Steel walks up behind oh, him. Oh yeah. It's just like, it was a pretty good impression. I almost recognized myself. <laughs> like bittersweet. Cause then he's the, the first KIA, I guess. Yeah. Um, but you're right on the nail, right on the money here. The, the little banter between the pilots about their limo and their Scrabble, the Scrabble board. Game. is just classic. Yeah. Yep. Coming off the board when I get back to base. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's just a good. I, you talk about like the the ability to not pull any punches with the visceralness of the combat footage, but then manage to interject levity throughout the entire movie. I, you know, that takes some skill in screenwriting. It really does. It and the thing is that it wasn't. None of it felt artificial. No. It was. I mean, the things like you know the bantery kind of thing are, are things that would normally happen. You know, you put a bunch of people together in any environment and you're going to get that. You had some things that occurred because it was kind of more of a high stress environment. Um, and, you know, if you kind of put yourself in the shoes of the the soldiers that were there, it wouldn't have been funny. But looking at it reflectively, it's it's pretty funny. You know, the, fuck you. Come to me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um you know, so they, they seem to do really well. I mean, the whole movie has just this great pacing. It, it has, you know, really good highs and lows, at least from a, you know, a cinema perspective. And, uh, and I mean, you know, ultimately it's a tragic story, it, even though a lot of it, well, I, I think anyone who's involved in this, pretty much anything I've read or heard on it, the folks who are involved will stand by the fact that their mission was accomplished, mm. which it was. You know, when you look at the objectives of the mission, they accomplished everything they needed to. The mission went foobar uh, to, to you know, pick up something from our last episode. But, um, you know, they got through that. But the actual objectives of the mission were were accomplished. And it doesn't seem that any of the guys who are involved in this put General Garrison at fault. Um, by all accounts, I mean, these guys stand by Garrison and everything that, that he did. Um, Garrison, as they mentioned at the end of the film, accepted responsibility as any good leader would do for what went down with this mission. But, you know, they all stand by the fact that Garrison was their guy. He was a good and solid leader and made good decisions through this and basically faced circumstances that were largely beyond his control given the parameters of the mission and resources and all that stuff. Yeah. And I don't think you can watch this movie or uh, I guess since we're staying in movie here, there are plenty of movies where the leader, the general or, you know, whatever the rank may be 
gets painted as an unsympathetic figure that mm. bears the brunt of, uh, you know, whatever the, the problems with the mission are. Um, I think back to, to Band of Brothers and um, uh, the lieutenant that just freezes up in combat at Bastone. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. The one that just dyke, Lieutenant Dyke. Yep. This isn't a Lieutenant Dyke situation. Mm. I mean, I, you know, from start to finish, like Garrison may have have been made some problematic decisions at points, but you never got the sense that he wasn't trying to get all support to the guys that he could. Mm-hmm. Um, and that he wasn't trying to, to, um, you know, execute this mission and pivot it, pivot it in a way that accomplished their objectives and got everybody out. I mean, I just, I boil it all down to his commitment to not leaving a single person behind. Yeah. They could have very easily cut sling on that objective, uh, that tenant, that principal, and perhaps gotten you know everybody out a little sooner. Uh, but what would that have looked like? Right. Uh, you know, and so I, I have a tremendous amount of respect, no matter how it shakes out. Yeah. And it's one of those things where it's so easy to judge on the back end. Monday morning uh, it, quarterback. It's easy to yeah, it's easy to look back a decade or twenty years after and say, uh, you know what, he screwed up. But uh, I, I think the situation is always, always different when you're in the saddle there making the tough calls. Yeah. Yeah, when you consider the pressures of it and the intel that they had at the time and the operating parameters they had, you know, again, I mean it's not us because we're we're looking at it from a movie. But, you know, real world, a lot of the operators who are there are, are you know, still hold General Garrison up as, as being a, a great leader with this. So, yeah, uh, we had a crap ton of military lingo thrown <laughs> at us in this movie, some of which we, we've mentioned. So it comes at a blinding pace at, at, in this movie as well, oh, even more does. so than <laughs> Band of Brothers or Saving Private Ryan or some of the other uh, war movies. Yeah, there's there's a lot in this movie that's really condensed into the package that it is. Um, so, Tom, I, I, I leave this list to you. You're our guy. You gave me a homework list here. This is, <laughs> this is quite the – so the first one is just the, the Blackhawks. So those are the, the passenger-type helicopters that you see. Um that surprisingly has been in service uh, since seventy nine eighty, somewhere in that neighborhood. Yeah. It has been in the the army's arsenal, so to speak, for a long time. It looks like more of a modern helicopter, and I think the vast majority of us are much more used to seeing it in combat operations in Iraq and Afghanistan. But this has been a workhorse for a long time, and is actually <clears throat> I. I <sighs> I could be completely wrong here, but I think within the next decade, uh, you may see a replacement coming down the line. Uh, work on that may be in progress as we speak, because uh, this helicopter is old. Uh, it's a great you know, workhorse, though. I mean, it can be oh, yeah. outfitted with anything. Um, it has a good passenger and cargo capacity to it. Uh, and it's used across all the services, too. I think it's in the Navy they call it a Seahawk. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you know, I mean, there's versatile. just so much utility to this and, you know, you, you, you see them all over the place. I mean, pretty much any uh, guard base will have at least a couple of these things sitting in, uh, you know, sitting in their back lot. And, you know, they're just they're really great, solid helicopters. Yeah, it's got such a distinctive profile too, yep. almost more so than the Huey. Yep. Uh, that it's, uh, 
you know, it's a, it's a modern sleek, you just can't, you're not going to misidentify it. Yeah. And a very specific or, sound or too. Um, I mean, if, yes. if you're used to the sound of helicopters, the Blackhawk is something that sight unseen, you can tell it's a Blackhawk. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the interesting thing. So you can, if you've watched enough war movies, you, you'll notice that, uh, especially movies that depict modern combat, you don't always see the correct helicopters get used. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of times you'll see a Huey get, you know, used in a, a movie that's about Iraq or Afghanistan. And like, other than civilian contractors, the army's not flying right. that airframe anymore. What's interesting about this movie is that they had the participation, like the army provided these helicopters yes. and they came from the 160th in large part the age six little birds and the, the black Hawks did. And you don't always get that level of cooperation with a movie. Um, but I think it, I mean, there'd be no way that I think you could credibly make this movie, like call it black Hawk down. It's like a Huey (laughs) going down or something (laughs) in its place or like to have to computer animate them through the whole thing. it just wouldn't work. Uh, so thank you to the United States army for loaning out or probably, loaning based on some cash payments. <laughs> oh, probably. And, and <laughs> these, these there was some real significant involvement. There's a great little documentary that was attached to um, the copy of it that I have on um, DVD or Blu-ray or whatever it was that um, they spend time talking about the making of the movie. And, and they talk a lot about uh, DOD signing on to do this. And, you know, basically once they, heard about the story that was being portrayed. They said, yeah, you know, we, we want to make sure it's portrayed properly and, you know, yes, we will, we'll do this. And so they provided the aircraft, the operators, um, a lot of other soldiers, uh, who were involved in this are, you know, were, were actual army. Um, they weren't actors. So there's a lot of credit given to the army in this. Yeah. And then it's the other helicopter you see prominently is most commonly known as the Little Bird or the MH6. The Blackhawk is a Sikorsky airframe. The MH6 is a Boeing airframe. But again, you talk about the the amount of time that the military uses this equipment. The original specifications for this airframe were put out in 1960. Mm. Uh, they didn't come into to service that quite that quickly, but. You know, we talk about like the the military spending lots of money. At least in the case of these two <laughs> aircraft, the army's gotten quite a bit of use for uh, the money that's been invested in yeah. it. They, you know, it's not like uh, you know your uncle that's trading in his his car every two years for a new lease or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're riding these things until they die. And the little birds are uh, based on a more civil uh, civilian style airframe. But again, they get a lot of utility out of these too. I mean, we saw them used as, uh, as you mentioned, they're they're the ones who delivered um, the Delta guys to the rooftop, and then you know we also saw them outfitted with mini guns, cannons, that kind of stuff. So they can do a lot. They're they're light, they're fast, they're agile. Uh, not like Black Hawks, which are these big hulking freaking things. Uh, <laughs> you know, very very different <laughs> aircraft. Like you said, very different purposes. Yeah, yeah. So switching gears here, an RPG or a rocket-propelled grenade uh, 
as, as it's more commonly known, well, the RPG is the more commonly known shorthand for it. That's what brought down those those aircraft. These things have been used for decades and decades and decades. Um, devastating weapons, if you can get it on target. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you don't, or in misfires, you see a little bit of that with some of the militia members that either, um, uh, I don't know if they, they blow themselves up with the round or what, but it's, <laughs> it is a dangerous weapon to use. It's got a, a back blast that comes out of that back tube. You see the, the tube kind of opens up or flares out at the end. You do not want to be in that backwards area as that thing is launched. And interesting, like the round itself has to travel a certain distance before it'll arm. Hmm. Um, and you don't always, you know, it doesn't always detonate. You brought up that scene earlier, uh, where that poor soldier gets hit in the abdomen. I don't know that it didn't arm because it hadn't traveled far enough or what, but, uh, you know, that kind of thing does happen. I mean, that's sort of a a mainstay of the Soviet military going back decades. Uh, the next would be, you see a lot of these guys, even if they're not named, uh, I think they're named a little bit. They just don't say it a lot. But the 160th SOAR, which is the Special Operations Avi- Aviation Regiment, these are this part of the special operations community within the Army. Uh, but these are specifically the aviators that uh, yep. that provide the helicopters and whatnot. Night Stalkers. Uh, base, the Night Stalkers, that's right. That's in, in fact, that scene where they're arguing over the Scrabble board. Mm. He says, uh, you know, I'll smoke you, Night Stalker, or something like that. I'll spank you. Uh, I'll spank you, Night Stalker. Even better. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's what he's talking about. And they're headquartered out of Fort Campbell. Um, I I was stationed out at Fort Stewart, which is connected to Hunter Army Airfield, which has a uh, a, a subset of the 160th down there. So you'd see them doing missions from time to time. You also have a, a Ranger Battalion that's uh, based out of Hunter Army Airfield in Savannah, Georgia as well. These guys are exceptional at what they do um if you ever need to take a a helicopter ride on the civilian side i guess and (laughs) you find out that your pilot was a former 160th you know you're good to go at least your pilot error is not going to be the reason you die that day yeah (laughs) Uh, these guys are just the cream of the crop and speaking uh, staying within the special operations community we have the delta and, and rangers next if you followed the if you listen to the Saving Private Ryan podcast, we talked a little bit about Army Rangers. Uh, if t- to boil it down into its simplest point, these are elite infantry. Uh, there is modern day. You can be Ranger qualified. So if you see somebody with what's called a Ranger tab on their sleeve, it literally just says Ranger on mm-hmm. it. Um, that may or may not mean that that they've served in a Ranger battalion. It does mean that they've successfully completed Ranger School, which is probably one of the difficult, most difficult schools or trainings that the Army has. Uh, but to serve in the Ranger Battalion means that uh, you are actively within that community. So these guys are operate within the Special Forces community. Um, and you see a little bit of it in the movie, their attitude or their relationship to uh, standard infantry units, because... There's a question of whether the 10th Mountain is going to provide dismount security for the convoy. And I think it's Captain Steele that's like, mm-hmm. the 10th Mountain, like, hell no, my rangers can do that job. Yeah. There's there's almost like this condescending view toward the uh, the, the regular infantry uh, a little bit. 
you know, in practice, you, uh, you see some of that, I think downrange, it's more like, you know, it's, I don't know that it's acrimonious like that. It's more like, well, you know, we're, we're very good at what we do and we know that. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. Um, which is okay. Delta is a, yeah, exactly. Delta is a super elite subset of the special forces community. These guys are getting plucked from normal special forces units and whatnot. Uh, they do highly specialized missions, uh, based out of Fort Bragg in North Carolina. Um, very, very secretive, uh, about all of the stuff under, understandably. So, um, if I could recommend an older TV show, old, like I put older and in, in heavy air quotes, but if, if you've not seen the unit, oh, yeah. it is exceptionally done. It's about Delta, uh, modern day Delta. I think the show ended in like maybe 2012 or 2013, something like that. It had a pretty good run, mm-hmm. but it's got Dennis Hasbert or Haysbert. Yeah. Who's yeah. most well-known, I guess these days is being the, um, is it Prudential? Yes. He's in all the insurance commercials yes. for car insurance, but he was the, uh, the president back when 24 was big with Kiefer Sutherland. Yep. Uh, but he's a sergeant major in that show. And it's got a lot of, it talk about another show with a lot of actors that have been on other stuff, but, uh, so you've got the Delta operators. Let's see here. Chalk is something that you hear quite a bit. Um, chalk is a reference to like it, just a group of soldiers. It's, it's really specific to airborne and air assault operations. And the amount of soldiers that it's referencing can really vary. Uh, but typically you're talking about, uh, you know, platoonish size element of soldiers. So, you know, 40 or so, so 40 or so, so soldiers, which is why through the beginning of Black Hawk Down, you see that lieutenant go down with epilepsy mm-hmm. as the seizure. And then Sergeant Eversman gets put in, in charge of his chalk. And that's a pretty significant thing because you've got a, a staff sergeant, um, you know, a mid-level non-commissioned officer getting put in charge of a lot of rangers there. So yep. it's a significant responsibility. That goes onto his shoulder, uh, shoulders right there. Bip. They don't actually say bip in the movie, but you see bip happening. And that's just shorthand for blow in place. And that's what they're doing to those helicopters is they evacuate. Uh, so to prevent any, certainly any classified or sensitive material from being taken or any, uh, you know, sensitive electronics, that sort of stuff. They de- demo those helicopters or, or blow in place as it's known because they're not moving it anywhere. Another one that's said a little bit, they medevac versus a uh, cas- casualty evacuation or uh casavac. Uh, when Smith is operated on, it's clear that he's got an artery severed toward uh, this is nighttime at the casualty collection point. Mm-hmm. They call for a medevac. And you mentioned, you were talking a little bit about your own experience here, but, um, Maybe you can expand. They they talk about 30. He's got about 30 minutes, but maybe you can touch on, Tim, the golden hour. Yeah, I mean, basically, when you're looking at anything that's a major trauma, um, we talk about things happening in the golden hour. And that's pretty much if even if you can get a patient reasonably stabilized. So if you have like a major arterial bleed or something like that. And you can get it stabilized like they were trying to do, which they they weren't successful in doing. You're still assuming a fair amount of blood loss. 
which then means less oxygenated blood going to the brain and to other vital organs. And you're basically working within what they call that golden hour to get someone to definitive medical care. Um, so, you know, field care is great to get someone hastily stabilized, but you need to get them, you know, on a surgical table quick. Yeah. And really the difference between a medevac and a casavac, medevac is the term you hear all the time, but a medevac is a specifically designated vehicle for the transport of casualties. So you most commonly see that red cross on the side. That means it's, it is not an offensive vehicle, meaning it, it might have soldiers on it who are armed for defensive purposes, but it is not a gunship or anything like that. A Kazavak can literally be anything. A Kazavak could be like your Toyota Tundra on the battlefield <laughs> that gets converted to, to, you know, be used to evacuate casualties. It can be a helicopter. It can be like those uh, Humvees mm-hmm. as they loaded casualties became a Kazavak. They don't have the same battlefield protections as a Medivac would. Or like a marked, you know, combat ambulance, say a Humvee with the Red Cross on yep. it. Um, or even the equipment but, that's needed. It's basically just, yeah. I mean, it's a hasty thing. You're throwing exactly. casualties in there and you're getting them the hell out of Dodge. Exactly. Uh, so that's that's always the the fall. But you always want a medevac. And if you can't get that, uh, your, your second resort is that casavac. Talk and jock. Uh, I think we've talked about this before and I cannot remember what the context was. But you see that General Garrison sits in a tactical operations center. Joint Operations Center would be just a different version of that. That's where your command and control for the battlefield is running. You see General Garrison and his staff there uh, sort of distilling information, intel from the battlefield, live reports, Mm -hmm. and kind of directing and controlling the action, coordinating reinforcements, that sort of stuff. That's what that stuff is there for. I worked in a jock in Afghanistan, and it looked sort of like a like a NASA mission control center. Um, But that was a, that was a large scale uh, unit and, and operation that we were in. I think more commonly you see a setup, like what you see in Black Hawk down a a tactical operations center where it's, um, you know, smaller number of people. Uh, C2 plays a a huge role in this movie. And I, I think much to the consternation of uh of folks so uh generally this is going to be your command and control of forces and you see it play out in terms of the like on all levels which is what's really cool about this um uh, this movie we talked about general steel or general steel i think you would like to be general <laughs> if i promote him i think you see it with captain steel and his sort of constant attentiveness to the chain of command like both when he like pulls pilla aside and he's like don't ever undermine the chain of command again Mm -hmm. when he sort of jerks the chain of the delta soldier you see it on a large level with general garrison uh, really doing his best to try to control uh the efforts there and then you see it go up an echelon sort of above him when he brings the un in um c2 is critical that's what the the talk and the jock is there for because without that, I mean, think about the chaos that those soldiers would like the added chaos that those soldiers would be in if they didn't have proper C2. They also make very specific uh, and, reference to, quote, the C2 bird. Yeah. And that's the one Black Hawk that was kind of continually circling um, at a safer, higher altitude. Um, 
that had in it the guy who was basically the intermediary between the ground forces and the jock and you know the the, the guy with the very um frustratingly even keel monotonous voice <laughs> um you know t- telling uh uh th- telling the colonel that he has to slow down and that it takes time <laughs> to get the information from the JOC to me and then back to you. <laughs> That's, I thought all I could think of was that scene in office space where they're doing these like performance evaluations. And he's like, tell us like, what exactly do you do here? He's like, well, I take the specifications from the customer <laughs> and I give them to the engineers well, why can't the customer just talk directly to the engineer? They're not people person. Like, <laughs> exactly. I'm a people person. Exactly. Don't you get it? <laughs> yeah, like, what do you do here, C2 bird? Uh, and then SAR, search and rescue. Uh, that can apply to a number of different things. Here in the movie, you see a, a specific helicopter that's designated as a search and rescue mm-hmm. bird. And that's, I think that's where Ty Burrell's character yeah. gets inserted. He's on the SAR yep. bird and goes in to uh, help stabilize and the wounded and, and uh, do what they can to get them out of there safely. Yeah. And that's some of your you know medical equipment. They could use the SAR bird for the medevac that they were yeah. talking about. Um, yeah. So that's that. Uh, I think... Let's see. I do want to mention Black Hawk Down as of sometime in January is going to be on Netflix. So if you haven't seen it, hopefully you've seen it before you listen to us here. Um, But maybe you haven't seen it in a while. So if you are a Netflix subscriber, it will be up on there within the next, uh, I think, couple weeks or so. If you don't happen to already own it. And um, I don't know. Is is there anything else, Tom, that you want to cover from the movie? No, it occurred to me that I need to get this. My my normal DVD copy is insufficient. I need it in super high def. Yeah, and okay. I'm ashamed to admit that I have not like upgraded yet. But I need to add that to next year's Christmas list for Santa. I guess absolutely. It's such a great <laughs> movie. It's such a great movie. So our next episode that we're gonna do, uh, we're gonna do We Were Soldiers, which is a Mel Gibson film, Vietnam era. Really good movie. I mean, some some nice build up to it. Some really great action. Uh, another like really tragic story, uh, and also based on some measure of true events, right? I think. Yeah, yeah. Well, he wrote a. Uh, I think. Yeah, it's based um, on we Colonel Hal Moore wrote his young, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think it's it's fairly accurate, top to bottom. Yeah. So that's that. Mel Gibson. So uh, let's see, certainly any feedback that you folks might have, uh, we appreciate hearing from you. We like to hear what you think about our show, the movies we're talking about, all that good stuff. So you can send us an email, dispatches at randomchatter.com. You can also find us online if you want to just direct deliver some of that feedback or constructive criticism, as I like to say. (laughs) You can find us on Twitter at randomchatter. Tim, where can they find you? Uh, also on Twitter, at Qui-Gon Tim. That's Tim with two M's. And you can find me on Twitter, at Thomas L. L is in Lee or Larry Harper. 
And you can find all of our shows at randomchatter.com. Uh, we certainly appreciate you folks spreading the word and supporting us. Um, you can do so in a variety of different ways, leaving reviews, iTunes, Google Play, wherever it is that you might get your, uh, your podcast from. We certainly appreciate that. If you take some time, click on all the stars, write in a couple sentences about uh, why you like our show and like what we do. Word of mouth is also huge. Uh, that's probably the biggest way that uh, podcasts get spread around. So please tell folks about us. If you have anyone uh, in your life, friends, family members, coworkers who uh, enjoy war movies and the kind of stuff that Tom and I are talking about, please give a referral and, and send them our direction. Uh, we also appreciate any financial support you could offer. Uh, we are part of the Random Chatter Network, and um, any as any type of organization has, we have some bills to pay. We've got 14 or 15 shows, I think, um, across the network covering a variety of different pop culture topics. And um, yeah, we have some bills. So uh, you can head over to randomchatter.com slash Patreon uh, and find out all about how you can contribute to us. You can even do like a dollar a month which, believe it or not, is a huge help. Uh, and for everything that you give to us, we also give back to you. Just that dollar a month will get you into our Discord community, if you're interested in joining us, which is basically a bunch of online chat rooms uh, talking about a variety of different things. So we have rooms for our shows. We have rooms kind of generally for movies and music and sports and all sorts of different things. Um, you can definitely find some common interests and some people who uh, are are also interested in those things. I lied at the beginning of the episode. If you're if you started this episode at what did I say 10:30, 10:40, I grossly underestimated the amount that we would have to talk about on Band of Brothers. So you were like well past New Year's. That's right. But the moment you've all been waiting for. Mm -hmm. Dispatches from the front is not endorsed by anyone affiliated with the films we discuss and is intended only for entertainment purposes. All names associated with and references to the films we discuss are registered trademarks and or copyrights of their respective trademark and copyright holders. Random Chatter Media and Dispatches from the Front are not affiliated with those trademark or copyright holders. Try as we might. All original content of Dispatches from the Front is the intellectual property of Random Chatter Media unless otherwise indicated. And that concludes the moment you've all been waiting for. Well, I don't know about all. I mean, there's like one like person, one listener left. I think it's probably your mom. Portion? <laughs> at this point. Here's his part. Turn it up. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Tom's mom. <laughs> All right, folks. Uh, we will join you again in a few weeks to talk about We Were Soldiers. Take care. <laughs>